I'm Dr. Jill Wiener. I'm a white woman, a doctor, a meditation teacher, a tapping practitioner, a writer, and I'm an aspiring anti-racist, an identity which I must constantly strive towards, work on, and reevaluate. This podcast amplifies the powerful voices of women and men in all aspects of the anti-racist space, from healthcare to spirituality to criminal justice, to provide a nuanced, honest, and educational examination of systemic racism. learning and willingness to be wrong. And I am so excited to have uh, Narika Jenkins here with me. She's the founder of A Woman's Worth Project and an activist um, to help uh, the rights of incarcerated people. And I am just really, really excited to have you uh, here with me today, Narika. Yes, thank you for having me. Um, so Narika and I, um, we didn't meet then, but I, I was introduced to her amazing work because um, she was a guest speaker at um, uh, the Equitable Dinner Series. Um, that's an Atlanta-based series, but it's on Zoom, so it's, it's uh, worldwide, uh, that focuses different areas of social justice. And uh, she was on, she was talking about her experiences uh, with being incarcerated and, and what she's been up to since she's, since she's been released and all the amazing work she's doing. And I just was so inspired by her amazing story and I'm so happy um, to have her here. Uh, Narika, I'd love to hear a little bit about um, your, your, ex your experience that brought you to where you are right now. So, I mean, yes, that's your whole life story, but, but if you could focus, I guess, on, on what led up to you being incarcerated, what that experience was like and, and what led you to start doing activism. Okay, so um, back in 1990, I met my daughter's father. He was uh, much older than I was, um, but I um, also liked the glamour because I come from, you know, a middle middle age uh, family, middle class family, mm -hmm. and you know, my mother always made sure that me and my brother was okay because it's me and my brother. Um, my father wasn't active in my life or my brother's life um, because he was a drug addict. So how does a drug addict react with kids or with people in general if it's not about drugs? Um, and so it was just, we, we lived in a one-parent home, which was my mother, and she gave us the best of everything. She did the best that she could as a mother because there's no right or wrong way that a parent is supposed to raise a kid besides making sure that they have three meals, um, that their clothes is clean, and that they're well-mannered. Other than that, everything else is stuff you learn as an adult raising children yeah. and um, so I, I was introduced to my daughter's father back in 1989 I was still in high school I was 15 years old and you know like I said I was enjoying the luxury of life um, because my mother you know made sure that I heard a bird of goodness since I was young I was 10 years old my mother was buying me bird of goodness shoes Neiman Marcus shoes you know Bloomingdale's and all the Saks Fifth Avenue all those different stores and so when I meet this man which is my baby father, we call him Black, he um, was a, in the life. And at the time, I didn't think that, I thought that I was invincible. Only because I was in school, I was doing what I was supposed to do as a teenager, not knowing the effects that his life would play in my life as I got older. So fast forwarding, at 15, I'm dealing with him. Um, at the age of 19, 18, um, I wanted to be pregnant with him, for him with my first child, which didn't make it. I was in high school. I was about to graduate um, from high school, and I lost the baby like a month or two after 
Um, I graduated and it was just like, you know, I was just enjoying the luxury, the, the money, the clothes, the driving, because he's the first one that told me, if you get your license, you could drive my car. I'm like, what? Okay, let me get my license. So in Jersey, because at that time my mother moved to Jersey, um, I would, you know, I, at 17, you get your license. At 16, you get your permit. And at 17, you get your license. And they weren't, you know, back then, I'm like, oh, wow. Wow, at 17 years old, I could be driving a Benz. I could be driving whatever car he has. So I'm like, oh, I'm excited. So um, I went forward and got my license. And, you know, it was just me and him from there. And um, at 19, I wound up getting pregnant with my daughter that's here now, Sequoia. Um, and like I said, he was still in the streets. He started traveling. At this point, he started traveling to different um, states. And um, some of his people that he was affiliated with got caught up. And when they got caught up, of course, they said that he was the one. He was the man. And um, 1996 is when he wound up getting arrested. I was in the car with him, me and my daughter. We had just went to go visit him. We didn't, we didn't go to stay. We just went to go visit because he hadn't seen her in a couple of weeks. So he's like, well, can you bring my baby down? I'm like, sure, I'll bring her down. So we drove down, and we was in the midst of a, a, a bus that we didn't even know what was going on. So they wound up apprehending him after putting us on a wild goose chase. We went on a, you know, he basically went on a run because he was like, they're not going to get me like that. And I'm like, well, what the heck is going on? You know, my daughter's in the car, you know, and all I see is state troopers following us. And I'm like, well, what the hell? Like, you know, what am I going to do? And I, she's back there crying. I can just hear her crying in the background. Mommy, mommy, daddy, daddy. And Because she don't know what's going on, but she knows something is going on. Right. Um, that time she was um, five years, four years old, going into five. And um, so needless to say, they apprehended him. Um, a year later, they came with a superseding indictment with me on it. Um, and the story just spiraled down from there. Um, I was in school and, um, I was in college, community college, Suffolk Community College, um, trying to get my associates so that I can go to nursing school. I wanted to be a nurse because I've always been a caregiver. So even before that, I was, um, doing home health aid. I was a home health aid where I would go to people's houses and take care of them. Them that couldn't take care of themselves or just assist them and like making sure that assist the living like helping them making sure that they eat making sure that their living um quarters is clean you know just little um uh light work that i used to do and then i also was dealing with quadriplegic patients where i would have to actually do everything for them you know feed them dress them wow. you know, um everything clean up and i didn't mind doing that because i've always been a, a people person. I've always been a caregiver of especially elderly people or people I know that they can't help themselves. And um, so that's why I, you know, decided to go to school for nursing because I knew that that's what I wanted to do. That was my destiny to help people, you know, especially elderly people with babies. And then, um, so I graduated from community college uh, June 1st, 1997. And June, July 21st, I went to trial because I, I felt like Okay, yeah, I know what he was doing, but I don't have anything to do with that. You know, all I did was collect the money. Like, how am I wrong? That's my baby's father, you know, um, but didn't know that conspiracy, you know, one or two people say you did X, Y, Z, whether you did it or not, you know, hey, they have a trial, they have a conviction. And so that's what happened. I went to trial and they found me and two of my other co-defendants guilty and they hauled us off the jail right then. It wasn't no... 
uh, get yourself together, make sure your daughter's good. It was none of that. It was going to jail. So I didn't have time to plan anything for my daughter. I didn't have time to even talk to my mother and say, well, ma, you know, if such something happens, I need to take, I mean, she just had, went and took, went into her role as a grandmother and took my daughter and um, took care of her. My daughter suffered a lot of, um, you know, uh, mental, you know, emotional issues, um, feeling like she wasn't worthy, felt like her mother and father had left her and, you know, my mother had to just constantly keep, you know, drilling in her head that, you know, you are somebody and your mommy and daddy is good. They're going to be home. You know, I never lied to my daughter. I never made her think that I was in school. I told her from the beginning that I was, I, I had a situation with your dad. Um, the, they, the law said that I disobeyed or I um, didn't uh, abide by what they said. And so now I got to go to prison. I said, you might not know what prison is right now, but you'll know, you know, because <clears throat> as time goes on, she started coming to visit me. So she knew what prison was at that point. Mm -hmm. so, um, and so she blamed herself a lot. You know, mommy, I'm going to be good. I'm going to be good. It's not nothing to do with you. You know, it's just the law. Um, they said that me and your father broke the law and this is the repercussions of it. So that's how that went. And, um, I winded up getting 19 years when I went to get sentenced. I got 19 years. Out of the 19 years, I would have to do um, 17 years. And um, they sent me to Danbury, Connecticut. And I spent seven and a half years in Danbury. And I don't know, you know, a lot of people don't know how the system goes. But when, once you're in the system, you know, they start giving you like days. They give you days for good behavior and stuff like that. So you can get up to 54 days within that year um, for good behavior. So when I first got there, I was cutting up because I felt like y'all took me away from my kid. Like, what else more <laughs> do you want me to do? You know, my time, how I felt fit. Um, but I, you know, was always a smart girl. So I, you know, enrolled in school. I enrolled in the programs that they had. They had programs there. Um, they had a VT building trades where I learned how to do tiling, uh, brick laying, block laying, tile cutting. Uh, brick cutting, block cutting. I did all of that, you know, so I did take advantage in spite of the Narika, the, the chocolate that was, that was in me while I was doing my time because I felt like, y'all not going to tell me what to do. I don't care what I want to do, you know. And so seven years later, I decided I need, I need to calm down, you know. Um, now my daughter's in her teens and, you know, she's about to go to high school and about to graduate in four years so I got to figure out what I'm gonna do so that I can get home to at least be a furloughed home where I can be home for like they, they how they do it is the first time is like 36 hours and then the next time if you do good the next time you could put it in and be 72 hours and then it continues to go like that so I wanted to make sure oh I'm sorry I don't know what it fell I wanted to make sure that I made it home for that so I said well let me be on my best behavior and that's what I did and um in the midst of all of that, my mother was my shero. She was in the midst of everything. She made sure that I was active in my daughter's life. She made sure that I made decisions where my daughter was concerned as far as, you know, the school she went to, you know, the program she went to. My mother made sure that I was active in all those things. And um, she kept telling me, Rick, you coming home? I said, I know I'm coming home. I just don't know when. You know, I done did almost 11 years. My like, when am I going to come home? And um, lo and behold, 
I had did a motion before I left Danbury. I had did a motion to um, get a reduction, but the motion that I did wasn't the correct motion. So what I did, so what happened was the judge wrote me back. The judge and the um, the court reporter wrote me back and said that the motion that you put in wasn't the correct one, but we'll keep it on file. So that if this motion ever, you know, if changes happen where this motion is pertained to, then we'll pull it out. So, I, you know, I thought that was a cracker bull because during, in 99, I had applied for a clemency. And a clemency is where um, the pardon attorney, not the, not the uh, president, but the pardon attorney looks over the paperwork that you send, see if it has good value and see if you have um, admitted to whatever crime it is. And then it's at his discretion if he wants to release you. Um, and what happens is he sends it to the judge. He sends it to the the president just for the president to sign. So at that time, I didn't know that Clinton, because at that time, Clinton was in office. I wasn't sure if Clinton ever got the paperwork. But then once I learned more about how the system goes as far as the clemency, then I knew that it had nothing to do with President Clinton. It had everything to do with the pardon attorney at that time that makes the decision. It's his discretion whether he wants to release you or not. And I, the only thing I could think is he didn't release me because I only had did like two years. Um, I was in Danbury with um, Kimber Smith and she had gotten the clemency. So I was like, well, let me put mine in. Let me do it and see what happens. You know, but she had already did like five years and she had her mother and father advocating for her, you know, out there. And my mother started advocating because being in a visitor room, you know, some of your fellow friends in there, you know, their family, our families got close and my mother got close with her mother and father. And so she started advocating as well. Hi there, Dr. Jill Weiner here. This podcast is sponsored by Conscious Anti-Racism, my online course with Dr. Maisha Claiborne, created for listeners like you who are eager to learn practical tools that will help you find your place in the fight against systemic racism. We even have a CME accredited version for healthcare professionals. Visit ConsciousAntiRacism.com for more information. Now back to the episode. Um, so the paperwork that I put in was a 3582, um, and that was for um, a reduction pertaining to the amendments. So now I'm in, they transferred me from Danbury, Connecticut after seven and a half years to FDC Philadelphia for a work cadre program. So what they say, work cadre program means that you go outside and you work. So they kind of prepare you for society again. Okay. At 10 years left. So how, how, how are you guys going to let me go out? And you have women there that's with less time than me. Their levels is less than mine. Why would you send me there saying that you was going to let me kind of get a feel of society again? That was a lie. Mm -hmm. So um, in 2006, going into 2007, November 2006, they changed the, minute, the uh, amendment, the sentencing guidelines for crack and cocaine because crack and cocaine are the same. But because crack was a black man's drug and coke was a white man's drug, they were giving out more time to, to um, black people, black and brown people, because crack, I guess, was more potent at the time. Mm -hmm. But you got to have coke to get crack. You can't have one without the other. Right. So when, um, like I said, I had that motion in, the judge 
hold that motion because now they're they're um, going back and forth with legislation and they're making some changes to um, to the uh, sentencing guidelines because my level was a 36, which is almost the highest level it could be. The next level after that is 38. I was a level 36. And um, can you talk a little bit about levels because so is a, a, a high level means it's harder to get out or what is a high level? More time. High level. Okay. Yeah, more time. They're saying it's, it's the severity of the crime. Gotcha. Okay. But the severity of my crime, my charge was this um, uh, conspiracy with the intent to distribute crack cocaine and cocaine base. Where, where, where was there any murders? There was no murders in my case. There was no, you know, nobody died. None of that. Right. So why was my level so high? And I was a first offender. I had never been in trouble a day in my life. So I didn't understand why my level was so high, but because I wouldn't testify against my daughter's father is why they brought my level to that. You know, because I wouldn't agree to do what they wanted me to do. You know, and that's how the government works. You work with me, we'll try to help you. But that's a crap, crap bull, because they told me if I worked with them, they would give me 15 years. I only was going to do 17. Right. Once I, but what was the difference? Yeah. For me. You wasn't helping me. You wanted me to do your job. But I felt like you do your job. You get paid to do that. I don't get paid to do that. Right. You know, they were mad at me because I wouldn't cooperate. So, okay, so the judge, they took your case back out. Right. They, the they, changing. Right. They pulled the, um, the motion that I put in. And because it, it, it um, went with the amendment that they were making to the sentencing guidelines, it applied to me. So I receive a letter. Before that, my mother was like, oh, you're coming home. I'm, I'm about to go to D.C. We're doing some lobbying down in D.C. I'm going to meet Kimba. I'm going to meet Karen Garrison and all of them. Karen Garrison, her two boys, her two twin boys were incarcerated. They're from D.C. Mm -hmm. um, and so my mother, you know, met a lot, of, a lot of women and men that were advocating for their children, sisters and brothers that were advocating for their brothers and sisters and, and children. And before that, I was um, featured in The Wire. The Wire is a um, magazine for wrong, wrongfully in, in, um, convicted, you know, men and women. Um, so she went to D.C. and um, I called her back later on that night to make sure they made it. And she was like, Rick, you coming home, you coming home, you coming home. I'm like, huh? She was like, you coming home, I told you, you coming home, I told you, you coming home. Now I'm like eight, um, I'm like 10 years in almost 11. She's like, you're coming home, you're coming home. And I'm like, okay, I know I'm coming home eventually. Like, how do you know that? And so she told me that, you know, while she was, they were lobbying, you know, a couple of amendments happened where they was gonna, um, the ratio for crack and cocaine was um, 100 to one, where they're gonna make it even, where people that were sentenced under the crack law will, um, crack slash conspiracy law, will get a, a break in their time. And um, I winded up, I, I received a letter from the judge maybe like a week or two later. And the judge said that, um, you know, due to the amendment of the sentencing guidelines, we are going to give you um, relief, which means um, they were gonna reduce my time. And at that time, I already did, like I said, almost 12 years. He said that he was going to um, give me immediate release. I was supposed to be immediate released from FDC Philadelphia. 
And I was like, okay. So I know it was a process for them to do my paperwork, you know, send it to the BOP and, you know, they, they do what they have to do. And so I'm looking for this immediate release. So now it's days later, weeks later, I'm still sitting there. I'm talking to the ward like, hello, I'm still here. Like, what's going on? And he says, oh, well, we're waiting, you know, for the BOP to calculate your time. The judge said release me. It was the same judge that sent this why are you still holding me so fast forward um i had to wind up staying an extra four months in fdc fdc philadelphia and then i had to wind up doing another two months in the halfway house because the bop said i still owed them um, according to their calculations that the the judge had and they had i still owed them an extra six months plus i still was going to be on probation for another five years so um, uh, Libby Lewis, which is, um, she's a former, uh, reporter from, uh, Washington Post and the National Public Radio. I had did an interview with her prior to, so my, my case was kind of like in the, so in the media already. Um, and she had, was standing outside waiting for me to get out because they said that I was going to be getting out and she stood outside and waiting for me and I never came. Mm-hmm. So that I found out that I was still in, still in there. Like I wasn't coming out. And so my mother started making phone calls and they said, oh, well, she still owed a BOP um, six months because the calculations that the judge um, wrote on the, the, the new motion and the calculations that they had wasn't correct. So I wound up spending an extra six months in the BOP's custody outside of the five years probation. Wow. So now I come home. And um, I come home, like I said, I had to be um, sent. I came out May 14th of 2008. I didn't get released from the halfway house until July 2008, July 14th, 2008. And um, I had a probation officer and she would always say to me, I know that you was railroaded. She told my mother the same thing. I know you was, your daughter was railroaded. I don't see anything that that, you know, points to her, like, besides her being, you know, the baby mother of Black. And um, so a year or two into my probation, she asked me if I wanted to apply for a um, passport, because I had one before, but they took it. And she said, you know, you need to apply for a passport. And I was like, why you keep telling me to apply for a passport? Like, they took the one that I had. And she's like, because that's the best form of ID you can have. And so I was like, okay. So I went and applied and I got it. And then I had started doing like a wellness company at that time. And the wellness company, they were traveling to London. And I was like, well, I want to go to London. And um, she was like, well, Narika, I'm not sure about the London thing. She was like, but um, I said, well, I'm going to put in, because I had put in a motion already into the, to, to the judge to see if I could get early termination of my, the rest of my probation. Because I had done everything I was supposed to do. I was back in school. I was working. You know, I was doing what I was supposed to do. I had to go for piss tests every week or sometimes twice a week because of my drug charge. And um, I said, I did everything I was supposed to do. So she was like, well, I'm going to put the motion in. She said, normally we don't release early termination of, of probation. She said, we don't normally do that. She said, but because your paperwork from Virginia never came up, I'm going to put it in for you. And I was like, well, that ain't nothing but God, you know. And so um, it was March 10th of 2010. I received a letter 
from the judge. But before I got to the letter, she called my phone. And I was like, is any um, anything else going on with, you know, me being able to travel? Because, you know, you can get permission to travel. And she was like, no. She was like, um, but something else is going on. I was like, what? I couldn't. I'm like, oh, my God, nothing else crazy could happen. And she was like, girl, I am done with you. I was like, you done with me? What do you mean? And she was like, I am done with you. You are no longer on paper. And I just screamed and hollered and just thank God. But two years later, I was done. I was free from the BOP's custody. And so it just was like, wow. Wow, what God can do. Because I never gave up faith. I went to Catholic school. I'm Catholic. I was born Catholic. You know, I went to Catholic school from kindergarten to 12th grade. I wasn't a bad person. You know, I just had bad company, you know. So why am I at fault for that? Mm-hmm. You know, so, so that's the story of my life. I, while I was doing that, I had went back to school and um, went for the nursing. But then I decided, I think I'm too old. I was already in my 40s. I'm a little too old. My brain don't work like a 20-year-old. Mm-hmm. And so I wound up going to William Patterson University where I switched my major from um, nursing to, well, I hadn't even gotten to the program yet. So it was, um, I was taking more classes to get into the nursing program and I wound up switching my major to public health education where I wound up getting my bachelor's in 2018. May 18, 2018. And in the process of that, um, I wanted to make a change because I had been into, in Jersey for 10 years. Jersey was never my thing. I'm a New Yorker. And I just felt like I need to make a change. And my best friend, one of my best friends, my childhood friends, lived down here in Georgia. She um, went to college here and she graduated, had her kids, her baby fathers is from here. And I was like, I used to come visit, but I would never think about living. And then um, one of our sisters passed away, Ramona, um, Ramona Brandt. She died, um, and I went to her funeral. And a couple of my prison mom and one of my, I call her my auntie, because, you know, we become a family in, in prison. Mm. Um, she was like, you need to move down here and, and start this nonprofit so that um, we can get this thing rolling. I could come over on your side and, you know, work with you. And I was like, hmm. Because I always wanted to do something to help the women, because I know what it was for me to come home and to have to struggle. Because at that time, when I came home, the gas prices was like almost $5. You know, I'm like, wow, you know, what has time come to? And um, so I, I, thought, I thought about it. And that was in, that she passed away in March. And like a couple of months later, I started looking. Just looking just to see what, it, you know, what the prices look like for renting a, a house down here. Because I said I wasn't coming down here to, to rent an apartment. I was done with that. I need to rent a house if I like it and then buy me a house, purchase a house. And so I started looking for houses and I really didn't tell nobody. I was just looking and I told my daughter once I got this house, I said, I'm leaving. She was like, you leaving? My, how you going to leave your only child? I said, well, either you coming with me or you going to stay here? I'm out of here. And um, I wound up, like, two months later, I wound up getting this house that I'm renting for now. And I moved down and started my nonprofit while I was in the process of doing all of that. I started the nonprofit. I did my 501c3. I got approved because I went through a, 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 um, a service that helped me do all the paperwork and all of that. So I didn't want to mess nothing up. Because right. a lot of, once you get to the IRS stage, they always want extra stuff. Oh, you didn't do this, you didn't do that. So I'd rather pay the money 
to get it done correctly versus me doing it myself. So I paid um, Floyd Green and they did the paperwork and I went on a, um, I had went away because there's another organization called National um, Council for Incarcerated Women, formerly Incarcerated Women and Girls that um, I'm a member of and Andrea James, she's the bomb. She's act, she was actually incarcerated too, but she was at the camp, um, Danbury camp. And so she started um, the National Council and we were actually on a weekend um, conference. We normally, she normally do, um, paid for by her in the organization and we would all go and she would just give us a lot of information. We would have breakout rooms where, you know, you have different speakers that would come and speak about different things, legislation, you know, Congress, how things is happening, what's happening with formerly incarcerated um, women and girls and how can they help and how can we help? What can we do to help? And when I got back home, I had my letter from the IRS stating that I was a 501c3 recipient. So from then I just started, you know, um, trying to figure out, cause I'm so used to instant gratification. I started trying to figure out, okay, so what I do next, girl, I want to get a house, you know, to help the women. I want to be able to put the women in the house and then I want to start my program, my pilot program. And so it wasn't as easy as, as I expected. And it's still not as easy as I expected. Um, I'm still looking for housing for the women because I want the programs, the pilot program to be an intimate setting where the women were in the house, like a three family, this is my vision a three-family house where the first floor or the basement will be where the programs will be. And those programs consist of mental health assessment and uh, counseling where the women will go through those programs because it's needed. You know, we all suffer from some type of mental health issues, whether it's um, molestation, whether it be just me not having my father around and not knowing that it played a mental, you know, mental part in my life. You know, just it's, it's a lot of things that mental health fall under and a lot of people are not aware of it, you know, and they, a lot of people don't know how to deal with it. So the mental health um, piece uh, in my pilot program will help those women identify those things and move forward in life. Because a lot of these women um, that go back to prison because something triggered them. Now, if they know how to deal with those triggers, then the recidivism rate will be decreased versus increased. Um, and then the next one would be life skills, just teaching them, you know, it's a lot of women don't even know how to look a person in the eye. And that's because they were abused or told not to look at me on my face or whatever the case may be. <clears throat> yeah. Life skills, and then etiquette. Etiquette is with the life skills, professional skills where um, we will have computers and I will be showing them or having someone come in because I have plenty of people that want to come in and HR people to show them the computer and how to write resumes and how to fill out an application, mock interviews, um, and then have jobs already available like Amazon, the high ex-felons, the UPS, they high ex-felons, um, United Postal Service, FedEx, they high ex-felons, have those jobs already ready, have a, um, uh, have a relationship already with them so that when the women are finished with the pilot program and get into that last step, they can just go there and apply and they can start working. Yeah. Um, but then I realized that sometimes that don't even work. Um, I used to drive for Lyft and Uber. And recently I was driving for them for two years, almost two years, and they did a background check. And I don't even know how my case even came up because it's not public. Federal inmates' records are sealed. 
The only way that you can get our records is if we do fingerprints. I didn't have to do fingerprints for Lyft or Uber. And next thing I know, um, I receive an email stating that they have my whole jacket, my whole, you know, charge. And I'm like, there's no way they could have just got that or pulled it up, you know. Um, so maybe somebody told maybe one of the passengers that I might have given a business card to when I'm trying to network, they might have said something to them. So they told me I could no longer work with them. So now my thing is, what am I supposed to do? That was my income. I was making like $700 in like two days. So how am I supposed to live? How do I supposed to be this law-abiding citizen when I'm my, my, I still got the scarlet numbers on my back and my conviction, my past is still reflecting on my future? How do I finagle that? So I started um, a trucking company under my grandson's name, Stone Love Trucking. And that's going to consist of logistics, which is where the dispatchers come in, a brokerage where you um, help the freight companies and the truckers get loads. Like you be the middleman and you help them get what they need. And that's what made me start that because I'm like, how am I supposed to live? Like I have an expensive lifestyle. How am I supposed to live? And I don't want to go back to the other life that I know I can, you know, and be comfortable. You know, no, I don't want to do that. You know, I want to be, I want to be the best that I can, especially for my grandson. You know, I don't want my grandson to come see me behind bars, you know? And so the society makes it that you have to do the things that you're comfortable with because they don't give you no outlet, especially when they know that you've been convicted of a felon. So. So where are things now? So you're, and thank you for sharing your story. And it's so amazing your your resilience and the, the your mom and her support and and never letting go and and the system failing you many times but then actually kind of being able to help you get out early which is nice to hear that something uh something did help you um how are you so what so a women's work project is that is that on hold right now or is that you're working on that as you're doing the the trucking so it's still it's still in effect. Um, I'm actually trying to see if I can get me some lenders that um, believe in what I'm doing because I already have a business proposal. I already have all of those things done. It's just a matter of getting the property um, and then moving forward with everything else. That's the holdup right now. But I've received like two small grants where I fed the community here in Douglasville. Um, I paid some utility bills and some rents for some of the um, less fortunate that live in like the uh, hotels. So I paid their rents, a couple of their rents, um, utility bills. I gave out PPP supplies because that's when, you know, COVID was real heavy. So that was like in last year. Wow, that's um, you did that. that I, and um, so now I'm just hoping that if I can get my CDL, you know, get the trucking thing going, then I can buy my own house. I don't have to worry about nobody giving me nothing, you know? I'm also in the process of getting my CDL. Um, I've taken the um, permit. I've done the permit. I've gotten all my endorsements for that. I actually started doing some driving lessons and I failed the test quite a few times with the parking. So um, I'm still working on trying to get that. And then at least if I know I can bring that into my program, the woman's work, because women may run into that same snag that I did. You know, thinking that they have a job, you know, and find out they don't have a job. Yeah. So at least, 
you know, you're your own boss. You can maneuver how you want to. That's something nobody can't take from you, you know. And I just want to be able to help the women and let them see that I went through a struggle. I ain't just come out and get it, have it all together. I went through my own struggle, you know, and this is where I'm at now. I think what you've been through and the story you're telling is, is so important for people who don't have a lot of connection to people who've been incarcerated and don't understand. And like, it can be very easy in our society to just like think of numbers rather than human beings with family and, you know, houses and, and, and education and all sorts of stuff. Um, and, and also everything that you've been through is, is such an inspiration. I can imagine for so many women who are going through similar issues, um, men as well, but I, I feel like you're focused on, on women. Um, and all those experiences are so helpful for them in their, in their journey. So I just, am so, so grateful that you're taking your experiences and turning them into something so positive. I don't yeah. know if grateful is even the right word, but I just, it's very inspiring and it's, it's very, um, it's, it's hard to not just get your life together, but then to help other people get their lives together. Who, who is Michelle West? Let's talk about her a little bit. Okay, so Michelle West is one of my sisters that's still incarcerated that we have been advocating for for years. Um, she's been incarcerated since 1993 for a drug conspiracy. Michelle West was the first a first time offender. Um, now she's served 27 years so far for a drug conspiracy case. Um, I'm going to read a little bit about her so that everybody can be familiar with her. The conspiracy law is often referred to as a guilt by association, which is what I was charged with, guilt by association. Um, since it holds ancillary people responsible for the actions of others, the key witness was a murderer who was given full immunity for cooperating. And this is what happened with Michelle. Um, Michelle was offered a plea of 20 years, but would not put her daughter or family at risk and went to trial. And that's because she was being threatened prior to um, going to trial. They were saying that, you know, they was going to do X, Y, Z to her mother and her only child and her mother. So why take that risk? Okay, I'm going to go to trial. Y'all going to find me guilty. So in the process of that, the key witness was given full immunity for him to say that Michelle West is the one that pulled the trigger when, in fact, they know he was the one that pulled the trigger. So now he's home. And she's been almost 28 years in prison. So she was sentenced to two life sentences plus 50 years. So we are constantly advocating for her. We were just in D.C. in March, mm -hmm. March, April. We were in D.C. advocating for her um, for Biden's first 100 days that he released 100 women. So she's not the only one, but she's the only one that I know that's still incarcerated that I love dearly. I she took me as her little sister. And, you know, just is a shame how the system is, is set up. You say it's justice, but it's unjust. Yeah. Because you let the person that committed the crime go, and she's still in prison. So where's the justice? There's no justice in that. Justice. She's still incarcerated, along with a lot of other women that are still incarcerated, you know, for whatever small little bitty crime that should have just carried a misdemeanor, not a, a, a federal charge, you know? So I'm just like, where's the justice? But we're not gonna stop fighting for her, you know? Um, 
we're gonna fight for her till she gets home. How do you how do you go through that process of 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 advocating for her? Who do you like? Do 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 you know people in Congress, or is there like a a, a way that you go in to to communicate with people in government? How, how does that work? So she's um, applied for clemency. Um, she applied for clemency, and when when uh, Obama was about to leave, excuse me, and she wasn't given the clemency then. Um, and that's because it never hit Obama's desk. It only went to, like I said, the partner attorney. Um, and so we have people advocating for her that's way bigger than me, you know, with this nonprofit thing. Um, but we're still just not getting any type of relief. It's, she's still sitting there, you know. Um, we're hoping that the right person can get to Biden or Biden's administration and, you know, release her. I mean, how much time can you? Okay, she admitted her wrong. How much time do you expect the person to do? 20 some years is a, a long time to be in prison. Right. Huh? So we're just hoping, we're keeping her, keeping her in prayer and hoping, you know, and praying for her daughter because her daughter's out here. She's a grown woman now, you know? And we're just hoping that she, this, this year will be her year and towards the end of the year that she will be released. I'm, I'm sorry to cut you off. Um, I, was there anything else you, you, you said release and I, I didn't know you were going to say it. So you said from prison, but um, was there anything else you were going to say before I ask another question? Um, no, basically um, her, we have a peti petition for her on, um, I think it's change.org. Okay. Um, where people can go and kind of like, you know, put their signature like they're doing for everybody else with the change.org. And then it's also um, candoclemency.com. And that's candle, C A N D O C, mm -hmm. and then clemency. So candoclemency.com. Okay. So, and you know, just sign. Did they put her name in? Like, would we, put, we just put in the name Michelle West, or is there? Michelle West, yeah. Okay, that's great. That's exactly what I was going to ask you is, is how can people. Um, help to support your advocacy uh, with her, and then and then how can people support a Women's Worth project? So um, my website is awwp.org, um, and that's the that's the acronym for a Women's Worth project. That is my website where people can go and look at what I've been doing. You know what a Women's Worth project is about, and they can also donate also on the page. Wonderful. Any social media or anything else we should. Um, I have an uh, Instagram page, A Woman's Worth Project as well. Um, they can see the work that I've done so also. Um, I've been um, featured in February 15th uh, issue of Black, Black Enterprise. Um, I've also been um, with uh, the, the dinners. Mm -hmm. and yeah. I've did quite a few interviews. So if they just Google my name, it, everything will come up. Um, I have a LinkedIn, but I don't have it linked in. I really don't go on LinkedIn, but um, I'm on Instagram more than anything. Instagram, and I'm really not on Facebook. I don't have a Facebook page for the nonprofit, but I do have a Facebook page. And what is the Instagram handle? Is it at a Woman's Worth Project? The whole thing. Okay. They'll see the logo. They'll see the logo on there. Okay. Yeah. Wonderful. All right. Well, Narika, thank you so much. Is there anything, is there anything you would like to share with anyone who might be listening right now about, uh, 
about anything, about your experience, about uh, the way that, that incarcerated people or, or previously incarcerated people um, are treated or, or what they can do to, to help or, or support, I guess, or just in general, uh, anything you'd like to add? Um, basically, I just want to say for, for those that never experienced prison, it will be hard for them to say, I know what you've been through because they have no idea. Yeah. Um, I thought that I would be in prison because I always thought that I was invincible. I never thought that me being affiliated with someone that's in, that's doing wrong or so the government say doing wrong um, when he was just trying to provide for his family, you know, because he couldn't work nowhere. Um, how I should feel or how any of my sisters should feel, you know, um, Experience is the best teacher, and I've experienced both. I experienced the books, the book part of it, and I've also experienced prison itself. And um, I just need people to just be aware, you know, um, of that mental health piece because that's very important. You know, a lot of women have suffered a lot of trauma, whether it be rape, you know, abuse, physical abuse, and a lot of their triggers come from that. And so as, as an adult or growing up as an adult, as a female woman, you know, if they never dealt with those traumas and they triggered by maybe a man that smacked them and then they wind up killing them, they're not, you know, they're not all the way wrong because you shouldn't be putting your hand on a woman. So mm -hmm. I just like experience is the best teacher and that we all need to educate ourselves about prison and how prison is designed. Prison is not designed to help or rehabilitate anybody. Prison is designed to break you down, you know, and to keep the recidivism um, rate up because they know, they feel like nine times out of 10, if you went one time, you're going to go back because you're going to go back to doing the same things you've been doing because you're comfortable there. Yeah. You're comfortable the things that you did, but they don't realize it's about survival. You know, that's just like putting a, a crackhead or a dopey in, in prison. You're not rehabbing them. They need to go to a rehab. They don't need to go to prison. And I, I, I know that prisons are designed for people that, that um, disobey the law. But you need, to, you need to, they need to have like another step before that. You know, they need to have another program before that to see why people do what they do. You know, and that's health companies. It's, it's a lot that deals with the mental that causes people to do what they do, you know? But if you never took the time out to even act like you care about someone and what they might have been through that caused them to make the decisions they made, then maybe this, the world would be a better place if you just take the time out and kind of empathize with people, you know? That's, that's what society needs to learn to do because they don't. They judge people by the way they look, or by the way they talk, but you don't know why they talk the way they talk. You don't know why they look the way they look. So if we would just take some time out to, to kind of understand people, written, gain, you know, research, you know, gain some knowledge, do some more reading and, and find out why people the way they are. I took psychology. I love psychology. <laughs> so that's kind of like into the mental part because, you know, with me not having my father around, it, it, it played a part and he was there, but he was not there. Like he was there. When I go to my grandmother's house, I used to yearn for my father's love. But at that time, I didn't know that that's what I was yearning for. So now I get older and I deal with older man. Why? Because my father was never there. I never knew the profile of the man. You know, so I think that if I knew better, I probably would have done better. 
but I wouldn't trade my baby father in for the world because he was a good man. And we got a beautiful daughter behind that, you know? And um, they always say that uh, it's a hundred to one, the ratio of a, a child having an incarcerated parent that they will wind up incarcerated. Well, that's not true. My daughter is going to be 30 years old next month. She's never been to prison. She graduated from Rutgers University and she's right in, now in the process of getting her master's degree. And uh, she's married and she has a son. So that, that, that uh, ratio or those numbers that they have, they're very incorrect. And then I have sisters too that children have never touched or stepped a foot in the prison, you know, and they're doing very well considering that their mothers or their fathers or both parents was incarcerated. Yeah. Need to research some more and talk to some women like me and my sisters that, you know, kids are doing awesome out here in this world. And Sequoia, that's your daughter's name, right? Sequoia? Yes, yeah, Sequoia. It sounds yeah. amazing. And it sounds like you and your mom together have done an incredible job being present for her and being there for her and advocating for her as well. So um, I'm so happy she's doing well and your grandson as well. Yes. Um, all right. Well, Narika, thank you so much again for taking the time to share your story and talk about everything you've been through. And, and, and um, help, help being the help to be the change. I mean, you're, 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 you're bringing a human face to a part of our society that a lot of people just, including me, myself, like I've certainly been through times where I've just it was too overwhelming to think about it or hear about it. And you can just very easily shut it down. One can just shut it down. And um, it's important that everyone who's interested in equity and, and social justice really take the time to learn about people in our society who are wonderful people who have, don't have the same stories as us, but um, there's a lot for us to learn and, and benefit from. So thank you for, for, um, for everything that you're doing. And I wish you all the luck with the Women's Worth Project. I'll have all the, the, the website and Instagram handles in the show notes. So um, hopefully some folks will, will donate. Yeah. And, you. and um, I look forward to seeing what comes next for you. Yes, thank you. Hi there. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Conscious Anti-Racism. Please be sure to follow or like us wherever you find your podcasts and also consider leaving a rating or review. You can follow Conscious Anti-Racism on Instagram and Twitter at Jill Wiener MD, J-I-L-L-W-E-N-E-R-M-D. And please check out our Conscious Anti-Racism book on Amazon.